0: Okay, Proverbs chapter 9, and we'll read the chapter and then have our Bible study on that. Proverbs 9 verse 1 says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live, and proceed in the way of understanding. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be uh, still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand... And to discern the difference between good and evil. Lord, the difference between wisdom and folly. Lord, that we would listen to wisdom. Lord, that we would come and, Lord, sit at her table. And, Lord, enjoy the feast that she has prepared and laid out for those who turn into her. Lord, may we be the righteous man who is always increasing in learning. Lord, the one who wants to be wiser still. And Lord, we pray that you guard us from being a scoffer, from being a fool, Lord, who rejects and who bristles at your word of reproof. Lord, show us how, Lord, the wisdom of this world is destined to perish, that though it pretends to be wise and sophisticated, yet, Lord, truly it is foolishness. And this will be manifested in that it leads to death. So Lord, show us. Lord, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And Lord, may we walk in the straight and narrow path. And Lord, reject and hate the wisdom of this world. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, here we have more uh, in this chapter. And in these opening chapters of the book of Proverbs, uh, you have laid out this commendation of wisdom. How necessary it is, how good it is and beneficial it is for us to listen to the wisdom of God. Right, before he gets into the more practical issues that will begin in chapter 10, where he begins to deal with these various situations and scenarios and wisdom versus folly, he is laying out in these opening chapters the necessity of listening to the word of God. And as we saw last time, wisdom is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, and his life perfectly manifests to us God's wisdom, right, in his person, in his life, in the way that he lived. And that's what we are called to follow, to imitate Christ, to follow and to walk in the manner in which he walked. So these are not uh, mere suggestions. These aren't tips, but we're dealing with issues of eternal life and eternal death. And we're talking about salvation here. That's what is at, on the table in the book of Proverbs. He's talking about salvation and then the implications of salvation as it manifests itself in the way that we live day in and day out. And these opening chapters are laying out for us the necessity of repentance, of faith in Jesus Christ, of heeding the word of God, the fear of the Lord, all of these things set in contrast to foolishness and folly. The one leads to life, the other leads to death. And that's the way that we should take these things. This is the way we should always address the Bible or always approach the Bible as dealing with issues of eternal life and eternal death. Every time we open the Bible to read it, every time we hear the word of God, we're dealing with issues of eternal life and eternal death. That's what is on the table and we have to take it this seriously. And that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is not speaking for his own benefit He's not speaking because he's bored and needs something to do. He is speaking for our benefit, right? He is saying these things for us, and we must heed the word of God and do what God has called us to do. So here we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Here, wisdom. Wisdom is here depicted as a house who has a house that is built on seven pillars, meaning that it has a very deep foundation, a very sure and a very stable foundation. So much so that the one who builds his life, who builds his house on the wisdom of God found in the word of God, that man will be unshakable, right? If our life is built on Christ's his righteousness, the word of God, then our life will be unshakable. Nothing will be able to make us fall, to stumble, to falter, but we will be immovable even on the day of judgment. We will stand on the day of judgment because we have built our house there upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. If we build our lives on this wisdom, Jesus Christ and his holy word, then this is what will be true of us. It says in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, in speaking of Christ, it says in Isaiah 11, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There, Jesus is clothed with the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. He has this Spirit and understanding, this wisdom, and then he gives it to his people, to those who are redeemed by his blood. The same Spirit will be in us, and he will give us wisdom and understanding of all things. Also, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 20 Hebrews 6:13 says for when God made the promise to Abraham since he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you and so having patiently waited he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves and with Uh, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purposes, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There, this hope that we have, which is based upon God and his nature and character, God who cannot lie, and then his oath, his promise, his word, which is unalterable because it comes from God. We have these two unchangeable things as an anchor for our soul, so that our soul is resting steadfast on this foundation. It has an anchor so that it is immovable, it is unshakable in these things. And this is what is being said here in Proverbs 9 verse 1, that wisdom is a house that has seven pillars in which it is built upon, which means that it is a certain and a very sure foundation. And if we build our life and we put our faith in the apostles and the prophets, then We are building it upon this foundation. This foundation, which will give us hope, not only for this life, but for the life to come. That we will stand before God and be right in his eyes because we have built our life upon his word. Verse two, says, she has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Here, wisdom is a house that has prepared food, mixed wine. She has a table that is set. And this feast is being set out for people, right? For us to come and be partakers of this. But not everyone will partake of this wisdom. Not everyone will enjoy this feast. But only those who listen, only those who heed the voice of wisdom. As it says in verse 3, she sent out her maidens. She calls from the top of the heights of the cities. Wisdom sends her maidens out. These are the messengers of God. Those who carry the gospel of peace into the world. Those who have the knowledge of the word of God and then go into this world and proclaim the word of God to those who are perishing. They have gone out into the city. They're calling from the tops of the heights. They're telling people that you need to come in here, come into this house. There is a great banquet here. And it's for you, for you to enjoy, for you to partake of. This is what we are called to do to preach the word of God to people, to call them to repent of their sins and to put faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And who should we call to? Anyone who will listen to us. Wherever we can go and find an audience and people are willing to listen, then we should be like the maidens who go out and beckon people to come and to partake of this feast, to partake of this banquet, which is none other than the salvation of God. This is why in Romans chapter 10, in quoting from Isaiah, it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. Beautiful feet because they carry the messengers to and fro to preach and to proclaim the very word of God. Also, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, Jesus uses a similar illustration to describe the preaching of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Matthew 22, verse 1 says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set the city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast." Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So there, the king sends out his messengers, his slaves, the prophets, to call those who were invited. They didn't want to come. They were unworthy for this, so he slaughtered them, and then he sends them out to call others, to go out and to get others and bring them in that this feast may be occupied, that his hall would be filled with these people. And who are these slaves other than the prophets, the apostles, and those who preach the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. And they are going out, calling people to come to the banquet, come to the banquet that has been prepared. And this banquet is the salvation of God, salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says. Right here, they are preaching to the naive, telling them that you are naive, you are simple, you are a fool. And in the book of Proverbs, simple, naive, fool, these are synonyms for wicked, for a wicked, worthless person. One who is an unbeliever, one who trusts in his own wisdom, his own understanding, but who does not trust in the Lord and does not build his life upon the word of God. And here we are to call people who are naive, which is true of all unbelievers. All unbelievers, they think that they're the wisest person in the world. They think that they are the fount and the the source of all wisdom and understanding. And if we would listen to them, don't don't most people believe this? That if we would listen to them, our life would be better, everything would work out smoothly, and that we should do everything that they say. Everyone has an opinion on every single topic. And if you listen to them, it's all going to be great for you. But this isn't the case at all. Who should we listen to? We should listen to God alone. We should listen to the word of God. And in order for us to do that, we must first be convinced that we are not as brilliant as we think. We are not nearly as sophisticated as we think. We are not as wise as we think, but actually all of our perceptions of reality, of the world, of our own life, our own ideas and opinions are completely worthless, that they're no good at all, that these are actually in opposition to God and we must reject our own wisdom and then come and learn from him to gain his wisdom. We have to admit and come to the understanding that we are naive people who have no understanding at all. Then and only then will we turn in here. That's why we have to tell people this. We have to tell people that you claim to be wise, but actually the Bible says you're a fool and you must repent of your foolishness and you must believe the word of God. That is where true wisdom is found, in the word of Christ, not in the word and in the wisdom of men. We have to say this to those who are naive and lack understanding, and then we ourselves have to admit this about ourselves. Every time we come to the Bible, this should be on our mind. We should have this conclusion that my own perceptions are worthless. I don't want my own opinions. I don't want the opinions of others. I simply want to know what does God say? What is his word? What is his declaration on this topic or that topic? That's what we should desire and want every time we read the word of God. Verse five says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Come eat the food of wisdom and drink, The wine of wisdom. And what is this food and what is this wine that he's talking about? Well, we just read it in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25 is using the same illustration or metaphor to describe salvation. And that's what the book of Proverbs is describing for us. It is the salvation of God, the forgiveness of sins, the removal of the veil that is over the nation's, which is death. Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with morrow in refined aged wine. Here, this is the, the best. Aged wine, right? Isn't aged wine? Old wine is better than new wine. And then pieces with the morrow which is the fine cuts of meat. This is the good stuff, the stuff that has all the flavor and that everyone wants, right? So he's using food and drink as a metaphor for salvation to show the greatness of the salvation of Christ. And it says in seven, on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. Right. Isn't that the covering over all the nations? Is there not any nation in the world that has been spared from death? Is there any tribe or nation in the world where the people live forever, where they have eternal life in their natural body? No. Every single aspect or every single corner of the globe, every tribe, every nation has been affected by the sin of Adam because we all come from Adam. This is why we must believe in the historical Adam as taught in the Bible and that he is the source of the entire human race, that all men came from Adam. This is why this is true because when he sinned, we all died in Adam and all the nations came from Adam. So all of them have that same guilt of sin and the penalty of sin upon them in their birth, in their birth, all nations. Well, who will swallow this up? Who's gonna have to take it away? right? We can't take it away. We don't have the power to. God is the one that must do it. God is the one who removes this veil from the nations. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, right? Tears because of the many sorrows we have in this life. And all the sorrows of life are the result of what? The one sin, the sin of Adam. This is why there is sorrow, hardships, and in this present life. Well, God's going to take all that away. Death, all sorrow, all hardship, all tears wiped from our eyes. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We have waited for him, and here, this is written in the Old Testament. Who are they waiting for? They're waiting for Christ to be revealed from heaven. And then when he is revealed, he is the one who accomplishes through his person and work this great salvation. God the Father doing it, accomplishing it through God the Son. So does the Old Testament talk about salvation? And do they understand sin and death? Right? How could they not? It's, it's absurd that the Old Testament doesn't teach salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah 25 is talking about. And that's what Proverbs chapter 9 is talking about as well. This salvation of God. Verse 6. What about repentance? Do they know about repentance in the Old Testament? Verse 6. Forsake your folly and live. Proceed in the way of understanding. What does it mean to forsake your folly but to repent? Repent and turn away from your folly. You have to admit that the way I've been living, right, all of my deeds, everything that I've done, everything that I've believed and thought, it's all foolishness. It's no good. So if, for example, someone is an idolater who worships false gods, and somebody comes and preaches the true gospel to them and tells them that these gods that you worship are not true gods, they're false gods, and preaches the true God to them and faith in Christ to them, and they believe in Christ, then what do they have to do with their idols? They have to burn them up. They have to get rid of them. They have to turn from their idols to serve the living God as they did in Thessalonica. This is what we must do. We must forsake our folly. Whatever sin there is, whatever foolishness there is, we have to forsake it. We have to give it up. We have to abandon it, right? This is what we must do at our conversion and then also throughout the rest of our life because do we not have Areas in our life where foolishness is still there. We have it creep up momentarily, temporarily because of the flesh. And we have to continually overcome it. We have to continually forsake whatever is foolish within us. And what happens if we forsake folly? You live. Meaning if you don't forsake folly, what's going to happen? You're going to die, right? You're going to die. Forsake your folly and live. And proceed in the way of understanding. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ, you'll have eternal life, and then proceed. Carry on in the pathway of understanding, which is live a godly life. Repent, believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then live a godly life. Isn't that the sum total of the Christian life? Isn't this what we're supposed to do? Right there in one verse, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 6. Notice in Luke 24, Luke 24, that... We are commanded to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And sometimes the Bible will say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Sometimes it will say, repent and you will be saved. Sometimes it will say, repent and believe or believe and repent. But all of it is always together. How can we repent of sin without believing in Christ? And how can we believe in Christ without repenting of sin? Right? They always go hand in hand together. Luke 24, 46, I say that because most of the time today, people don't want to hear repent. They just want to hear believe, meaning some superficial decision in Christ. And then you can go and live in your sin however you want, and you're still going to go to heaven. But that's not what we're supposed to proclaim to people. We have to preach repentance. And many times the Bible emphasizes repentance because that's exactly what people don't want to hear but that's what we need to hear, and that's what we need to proclaim. Luke 24, 46. He said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in Christ. An example of this would be Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, verses 7 to 14. This was the message of John the Baptist. He was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins before the death of Christ, showing that this has always been the case, whether before or after his death and resurrection, there must be repentance of sin. Luke 3, verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Is that a very good way to endear yourself to your congregants, right? To those who are coming to be baptized by you, to tell them to push back. He knows that they're being superficial. And so he's pressing upon them here when they're coming to be baptized to examine themselves and make sure that they're doing it for the right reasons. Right, That they're not being superficial and they're not just doing it for a show, but they need to be serious-minded when they're doing these things. And a person who is serious-minded, they're not going to get offended at these words, but they're going to examine themselves and make sure. So he says to the crowd, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, "'We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham.'" Indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him saying, then what should we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with one who has none and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to do some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What should we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So here he's preaching repentance. And then when they're asking him, what does that look like? How does that manifest itself in our life? He's telling them what they need to do, right? You need to not be selfish, but you need to love others. You tax collectors need to quit extorting people Right? That's theft. You can't be a thieving Christian. You can't be an extortionist Christian. So you have to repent of that. And don't we have an example of that in the ministry of Christ with Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, and he gave half of what he had to the poor, and anyone he defrauded, he paid back four times. That's what John the Baptist is saying as well. And where would Zacchaeus learn that from? Jesus, who's preaching to him repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and the soldiers. Right? They're, they're lying about people, accusing people falsely in order to extort money from them. They're not being content with their wages. Is that a sin? Yes. So they need to quit doing those things and live an upright, content, and a godly life. This is what is being taught as well in, by general principle in Proverbs 9 verse 6. Forsake folly and live. Proceed in the way of understanding. Now, verses seven to nine, a contrast between a wicked man and a righteous man, a scoffer and a wise man. Seven says, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. The way we respond to the word of God manifests or proves what is true of us, what is true within our heart. Are we wise or are we a scoffer? Are we wicked or are we righteous? Well, when we hear the word of God, and if we are corrected by the word of God, by the messenger of God, if we are a scoffer, then what will that scoffer do to the messenger? He's going to dishonor him. If you correct a scoffer, he will dishonor you. If you reprove him, you're, you're, he's going to insult you. Isn't that what they do? They begin to rail. They begin to spew out their blasphemies against them. And that's why he says, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Now, is he contradicting himself? Because at first he says, correct them, reprove them. Then he says, don't reprove them. Well, how do we know they're a scoffer, but that we reprove them? But then whenever they manifest that they are scoffers, then what should we do? If they show no sign of humility, no sign of repentance, and they continue to blaspheme God, then get away from them. Don't say anything else to them. Wash your hands of them, wipe the dust off of your feet, and leave them in their own sins and walk away from them. That's what he means here. So when sin manifests itself and we see it and we say something about it, and the person responds with scoffing, they begin to insult us, they begin to blaspheme God, then you walk away from them, and their blood is on their own head. But if you reprove someone who is a wise man, and then he responds with love for you, when he says, teach me more, I want to understand more, then there's hope for that man. Then we want to continue working with him, continue teaching them, continue to help them, because they are increasing in their learning. This is the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The one hates the word of God, especially when it comes to touch his sin, right? And this is the way it will be in the church. We'll preach and we'll preach and we'll teach and teach and teach. And many times it's not a problem for people. But then there's one issue that strikes a nerve. Some area of unbelief, some area of disobedience in their life, that they don't want to give up. And then whenever you hit that nerve with the word of God, they either have to repent or what do they do? They get mad and they flee and they run away. This is what he's describing here. And it's happened time and time and time and time again. This is the way that men behave. Everything is good and great until you hit that area of unbelief and that area of sin. Well, when the Bible corrects us, how should we respond? We Humility humility, and repentance. Let me search the scriptures to see, is this so? And if it is, then I need to turn away from it. I need to turn away and I need to do what the Bible tells me to do. That's the way that we should be. That's the attitude of the Christian life. A couple of cross-references. First, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 6. Matthew 7, 6 says, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. That's the same as don't reprove a scoffer. If you know someone is a blasphemer and a scoffer against God, then why would you give them the holy things of God? Don't do that. They're going to turn and devour you. Don't correct them at all. Leave them alone. Leave them, be, leave them in their own sin. Psalm 141, the other side of the coin is the righteous man. And what is he like? 141 verse 5 says, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. So there he says, let the righteous smite me. Let him do it in his kindness. Let him reprove me, right? If I am in sin, I want the righteous man to come and to reprove me, confront me, and that's going to be for my benefit and for my good. So that's the way that we should be, willing and ready to hear the word of God and to listen to the reprove of others. Verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. Here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is this fear of the Lord that we must have? Well, doesn't Jesus say, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul? I will tell you the one that you should fear. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of God, the fear of judgment, the fear of standing before God. Is it not a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God? And our God is a consuming fire, and every person will answer to God one day? The fear of God. We need the fear of the Lord, this knowledge that God sees all that we do, that he hears all that we say. Every thought in our mind is before him, and that we all will stand before God and answer for everyone for what he has done in the body. We need the fear of God, this fear of judgment, because in our sin, when we're still dead in our sin and we come to this knowledge of the day of judgment and this understanding of what God is going to do to the wicked, doesn't that cause us to tremble and to say, what what can I do to be saved? right, what must I do in order to be reconciled to God? This is what the Spirit of God teaches us when our eyes are opened by the Spirit to see the reality of our sin, the guilt of our sin, in contrast to the holiness and righteousness of God in this knowledge of the day of judgment. The fear of the Lord, the knowledge of his judgments, this is the very beginning of wisdom. How will anyone repent and be saved without knowledge of the day of judgment? It must begin there with a true understanding of the righteousness of God, his hatred and detestation of sin, and his hatred of our very person. Everything about us in our natural state is loathsome and detestable in the sight of God. And if we remain in that state, then we are going to be thrown into hell for all eternity. We must come to this knowledge and understanding and then flee the wrath to come. Flee to the refuge, to the place of safety, and who is the place of safety? but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And we must do this. Now, we can't do this on our own, right? It cannot come about by our own wisdom and understanding. We must be taught this by the Spirit of God. But this is what we're supposed to teach other people. Teach ourselves, teach our own family, warn other people as well of the day of judgment and the wrath that is coming. Isn't that what John the Baptist was doing? It's like, Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Why are you even here? Who told you to come out here and flee the wrath to come? So we have to be preaching and teaching these things. And then also notice he says, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. True understanding is knowledge of the Holy One. What do we have to understand about God? He is the Holy One. He's not one holy person amongst many other holy ones, but he and he alone is the holy one. He is the righteous one. And everything else in comparison to God is what? Filth, disgust, everything. Even the moon is not bright and the sun are not bright in the sight of God. How much more man who is a maggot? The son of man who is a worm. This is as it says in Job 25. Who are we, right? But maggots before God. He is the holy one of Israel. And this is the one that we have to answer to. This is the one that we have to be right in his eyes. And that's the problem, generally speaking, with men. They think that by their own goodness, they can appease God. That if they're good, good people, if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then they're all going to make it to heaven one day. Isn't this what people believe? But how do you define good? Who's the one that determines the standard of what it means to be good? Well, here it tells us it's the Holy One of Israel, the Holy God. He's the one. That determines the standard. And who can measure up to God's standard, to God's expectation? No one. Only Jesus Christ. Yes, none of us can. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must have the fear of God. Joshua 24. Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. Twenty four nineteen. then Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods and he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. So here, they, the people don't understand, right? That's what he's dealing with. It's not that God won't forgive anyone or that there's not salvation. He will, but not superficially. Not when people have no desire or no expectation to turn away from their idolatry and their sin. And the reason they think that they can appease God and have God's favor and also go and worship and serve their false idols and go out and commit immorality and everything's going to be okay is because they don't understand that he is a holy God. He's a holy God. And that's the same problem we see today. Whether it be in the culture And we also see it in the churches today. The worthless churches, which is most of them, they're not preaching the holiness of God. They're not preaching the righteousness of God. And they're telling people that you can live in sin and you're still going to make it. It's all going to be all right in the end. No, we can't believe this. This is worthless. And we can't have true knowledge of God without an understanding that he is the Holy One of Israel. So we have to see our sin in light of his righteousness and then we have to vindicate God. God, you are right to condemn me. You are right to pronounce a curse of death upon me. Didn't Isaiah do this in Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. He pronounced a curse upon himself because he saw himself in light of the glory of God. And who was that God that he saw there in Isaiah 6? Well, the apostle John tells us he saw the glory of Christ. Christ, that is who he saw because no one has seen God. The only begotten God has revealed him. Then verse 12, Proverbs nine twelve, If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. Now here, he's not saying that if we are wise, it doesn't impact anyone else. Of course, if we're wise, it will impact other people. A father who is wise and who has understanding, who understands the word of God, well, isn't he going to teach his wife and his children and his grandchildren those things? And it's going to be a great benefit to them in terms of their knowledge and understanding of God. And if that father is a scoffer, who's a profane man, a drunkard, and a glutton, and does and commits all sorts of immorality, then isn't he going to set a bad example for his children and grandchildren that's going to impact them as well, right? So he's not denying that what we do, our words, our deeds, our example, doesn't have an impact upon this or that person. But in terms of the day of judgment, Each man will answer for what? What he has done, his own deeds. And if the father is wise, then on the day of judgment, he will be wise for himself, right? God will reward him according to his wisdom, right? And again, by wisdom, we're talking about salvation, his faith in Christ. He will enter into the kingdom of God, but his children and grandchildren will not get in based upon his wisdom, if they themselves have not also believed and put their faith in that wisdom. And if a man is a scoffer, then on the day of judgment, he's going to bear his sin and he's going to be cast into hell. And his children and grandchildren are not going to be cast into hell because of his sins. Now, if they follow after him and live a scoffing life like he did, then they're going to answer for their own sins. This is the way it is when we stand before God. Each man will be repaid according to what he has done. He has done. And the clearest example of this or teaching of this is Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, because here <clears throat> the people are complaining against God, against God's justice and his righteousness, saying that they are in a miserable state and it's their father's fault. Right? Their fathers did it, they, they ate sour grapes. And then the children, their teeth are set on edge. We're we're receiving the repercussions of what our fathers did. And Ezekiel is saying, no, this isn't the case at all. You people are getting exactly what you deserve. This is the way it is. People always making excuses. They were making excuses back then. People are making excuses today. Everyone has a lame excuse before God. But God won't put up with it. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the father as well as the souls of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and execute true justice between man and man, If he walks in my statutes, in my ordinances, so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Now here, he's not saying righteous on his own, righteous by his own strength, righteous by his own power. The life he's describing is the life of faith, the life that is the fruit of salvation. When a person is truly saved, changed by the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, puts true faith in Christ, then this is the kind of life that they will live. And they are called righteous men. Not because they've done it themselves. It's all a gift of God. It's been given to them by God. But it is a true uh, description of that person and the way that they live. Well, if a man has true faith in Christ and his faith is manifested by a life of righteousness, so it's true and legitimate faith, then that man is going to live. He will surely live, says the Lord. But then verse 10, But then he may have a violent son who sheds blood, who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his eye to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. So will the righteousness of the father get the wicked, violent son into heaven? No, No. he's going to die and he's going to go to hell because of those things. Then verse 14, now behold, he has a son who has observed all of his father's sins, which he committed and observing does not do likewise. Now, this is a point to make because many times people will excuse their sins or the sins of others. Because, well, they don't know any better. They've never been taught any better. Like people who live in the inner city, the ghetto, this or that neighborhood, and you see it generation after generation after generation. They'll excuse the sin because the people just don't know any better. It's the way that it's always been. Well, what what does this say right here? Shouldn't they observe the life of their father? Shouldn't the son who's born in immorality without a father in the home and he sees how miserable his life is because he did not have a dad at the home, then shouldn't he say, I don't want to do that to my son. My father did it to me and my life was miserable. So why am I going to go and do that to my son? But then what do they do many times, 99% of the time? They do the same thing over and over. Well, you should know better because you yourself saw how miserable it was for you. Isn't that what's going on here? The son sees his miserable father and says, I don't want to be like him. Right? I see all the things that he did, how miserable it made it for me, for my mom, for the home, for society. I don't want to be like him. So he sees it, and he does not do likewise. He doesn't eat on the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or oppress anyone or retain a pledge or commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hands from poor, uh, from the poor and does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statues, he will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. So there he repeats this, and then he continues dealing with these issues. So that's what we mean here in Proverbs 9, verse 12. If you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you are a scoffer, you alone will bear it. The wise man who has a scoffing son, who has a wise grandson. Each one will bear and God will repay each one according to what he has done. Then verse 13, the woman folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. Here we see the replica or the fake, the imp- imposter, impersonator, right? Isn't this true in the Bible that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light? He disguises himself in a certain way in order to to pluck away in order to deceive the naive the simple those who lack understanding here notice that the woman folly she is also standing at her door she is also calling to the people she is telling them to come into her house and to come eat her morsels and to come and drink her wine she's doing the same thing as the woman wisdom but she's doing it with sinister motives She's lying to them. She's being deceptive to them. She's not telling them the truth. She's deceiving them in order to destroy them so that they go to hell. She's not out there telling everyone, I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. If you want to go to hell, listen to me. Does anyone say that? Does any cult, any false teacher, do any of them go out and say and proclaim to all people how foolish and stupid they are? No, they don't do that. They confer degrees upon themselves. They give titles to themselves. They wear robes around and and dress in a certain way that makes them look very sophisticated so that the deception is even greater. And this is what she is doing. She is boisterous. She is loud. She's naive. She knows nothing. Yet, even though she knows nothing, she's telling everyone to come and listen to her. Come listen to me. Come and learn from me. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city. The high places, the honorable places, the reputable institutions like Harvard, like Yale, like Princeton, right? Which they're not reputable in our eyes. They're detestable to us, right? Who would want to go to those worthless schools? Because much of what they believe and teach is foolishness, right? Complete and utter garbage, They don't even know the difference between a man and a woman. Even I knew that in in early age. It's obvious, right? You can tell if you grow up on a farm, there's the male cow and there's the female cow. And a child can learn that at a very early age. Yet these people, these masters of the universe, these wise men and women, they don't even know the difference between a man and a woman. And yet we're supposed to go to them for knowledge and wisdom. They're telling us how we should live how we should order our life, what we should believe, our values that we should adopt. Aren't they doing this all the time, telling us what we should do? Constantly pontificating to us and to everyone else about their wisdom and all that they have. They claim to be wise, it says in Romans 1.22. But actually, what are they? They are fools, claiming to be wise They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Revelation chapter 17 describes the world, the devil, the Antichrist using these types of images. Revelation seventeen three to 5. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations, and of the unclean things of her her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This is how the world, the flesh, the devil, they are presented in this way as a prostitute, a brazen prostitute, but with gold and precious stones and all these pleasures right there in her right hand, calling for us to come and to drink and enjoy and it's going to be great. You're going to, you're going to live in a way that you've never lived. You're going to enjoy all the wonderful pleasures of life. Well, what do we have to have to overcome this? We have to have discernment. We have to have faith. We have to have our practice of discernment trained by a constant practice to distinguish good from evil, according to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. We have to be able to see through these lies and not be caught up in these many deceptions. Then, verse 15, who is she calling to? Calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Now, certainly, the naive, foolish woman, she's calling to everyone, anyone who will listen to her. But here, specifically, it's those who are trying to make their paths straight. Well, who in this world are trying to make their paths straight? But the Christians, the believers. We're the ones that want to walk on the straight and narrow. We're the ones that want to do the will of God. But she's telling us to come over here. Come over here and listen to her. So she is tempting even the Christian, even the believer, to forsake the way, turn aside from the path, and do not walk in the straight ways of the Lord. It says such in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This is what was happening at the church in Thyatira is that there was a false prophetess there in the church who was leading the bondservants of Christ to commit immorality. She was doing this there in the church. Revelation 2.20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed. idols. So that's what she's doing there in the church. Those who are bondservants of Christ, who are walking on the straight and narrow, she's leading them astray so that they commit immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. They commit abominations against God. This is what the naive woman is doing. This is what she wants to do to us. Verse 16, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And he who lacks understanding, she says, So here she is pretending to offer wisdom, right? Isn't she calling in the same way that we saw of wisdom? Wisdom was saying the same thing. If you're naive, turn in here. If you lack understanding, come to me and I'm going to teach you. Well, that's what she's doing as well. So she's claiming to have wisdom, to have understanding. She has a form of godliness, but she denies its power. This is the way that they are. So no one, again, is out there telling us that they are fools, that they wanna send us to hell, that if you listen to them, that they are a prophet of the devil. No one's saying that. Everyone is claiming to have true, legitimate wisdom. But how can we discern between what is true, who we should listen to, and who we should reject? The word of God. We have to go to the Bible, to the word of God. This is our source of understanding, right? By which we judge all men and everything that is said. What is she saying? Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Stolen water is sweet. You didn't earn it. You didn't purchase it. You stole it, but it's sweet. It's not bitter. It's sweet. It's good. You're going to love it, but you didn't have to pay for it, right? Who wants to pay for anything? And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Eaten in secret because it's stolen bread. You steal it, and you go eat it in a secret place. You can't do it openly because you're going to get caught and thrown in jail. But she says it's pleasant to do such things. And here, these are, certainly these can happen literally, right? People do steal water. Water was stolen from Abraham. His wells were stolen from him. Certainly people steal bread and do those kinds of things. But these are used as metaphors for anything sinful. Whatever is sinful. Whatever is uh, a delight that comes from sin. That's what she's saying. Sin is doesn't lead to death, but rather it will lead to delight. And if you come and eat of it, you'll taste and see how good sin is. That's what Satan did in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve. But does it end well when we drink stolen water and when we eat stolen bread? No. Verse 18, he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. We can always be assured. Uh, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If we sow sin, we will reap death. That's what the word of God is telling us. So we can't listen to her. If somebody is tempting us to sin, we know that they do not have our best interest in mind. We know that they are liars. They are not looking out for our good no matter who they are, whether it's our father, our mother, our wife, our children, our best friend, our brother, whomever it is, if they're telling us to sin, they do not have our best interest in mind because sin always leads to death. And the naive man doesn't see and realize and understand he should know better because the word of God tells us the wages of sin is death, but he doesn't Think about it. He puts it out of his mind and convinces himself that he can commit these sins against God and he's not going to go to hell. But th- does it work like that? No. Her guests are in the depths of Sheol. If you go and eat at her house, her, depths, her guests are in hell. That's what he says. They're in hell. And if you go and eat at her house, where are you going to go? You're going to go to hell with them. So what should we do? Stay far away. Flee from her. Have nothing to do with this foolish woman, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of Satan. Reject it and instead build our lives on the wisdom of God that is found in the word of God and then it will lead to life instead of leading to death. This is what we must do each and every day, each and every week as we go from here. Reject the world, the flesh and the devil and embrace the word of Christ. Whatever the word of God says, that's what we need. And that is what is going to be good for us. It's going to be good for our wives. It's going to be good for our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our family, whomever else It's going to be a benefit to all men. If we are believing the word of God and then teaching others what the word of God says. So let's then walk in the straight ways of the Lord, rejecting the crooked paths of sin and living in the path of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and the clear warnings it gives to us, Lord, concerning sin and death, Lord, as well for the rewards and the promises that it offers, Lord, to those who believe and who turn away from sin, Lord, who who walk in the path of righteousness. Lord, help us to see and to have this conviction, Lord, that your word is true, that your word is righteous, Lord, that it is eternal and that it will never change. And Lord, as well, that anyone who contradicts or opposes your word, Lord, that they are lying. They're not telling the truth. But rather that they are under the deception of the devil. Lord, give us discernment so that we might be able to discern between good and evil. Lord, to discern between what is right and what is wrong, between what is true and what is false. Lord, we know that there are many false teachers, Lord, that have gone out into the world. And that they present themselves as having a wisdom from you. But Lord, may we be those who judge all things by the word of God. And Lord, we pray that you would give us true wisdom and understanding. Lord, in, Lord give us the knowledge of the Holy One. Lord, give us the fear of the Lord. Lord, so that we might Lord walk with you in uprightness, Lord turn away from sin. And Lord, not come under the lies of the devil. Lord, we pray that you be with us as we go from here today. Lord, give us safety as we travel home. Lord, as well, we pray for uh, Lisa and Eleanor, especially today. Lord, especially for Eleanor, that you would uh, heal her, Lord, and that the sickness that she's been dealing with for the last couple of days, Lord, that it would go away and that she would uh, be able to be restored to good health and be able to keep her food down as well. For Lisa, Lord, that you would comfort her as she's uh, there caring for Eleanor and be with Chris and Clara as well as they travel home. And Lord, we pray that you would restore their family and bring them back to us. Lord, be with us as we go from here. We pray for your blessing to be upon us and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.